that's all. Oh, well, just to let you know the format of this evening, there's going to be a short YouTube clip that Paul has selected, and then there'll be a little pause. Because of the back and forth between here and the cinema, there's slight pauses in between, so please bear with us. Um, and then Paul will speak for about 10, 15 minutes, followed by a 40, 45-minute discussion with Slavoj, followed by questions from you guys. That's it. Please give them both a very warm welcome. Jacques Lacan was a French psychoanalyst. He makes Freud sound like a simple valley girl. Lacan's theory of how the self works is so complicated it makes my teeth hurt to think about it. Slavoj Žižek is a philosopher at the University of Ljubljana, Slovenia, I think I said this fairly close to the way it's pronounced, who has written a book called The Puppet and the Dwarf. The book takes a, modern, takes a look at modern Christianity from the viewpoint of Lacanian psychoanalysis, or at least that's what I think it's about. Welcome, Mr. Zizek. Did I say it? Tell me the right way. Slavoj Zizek. But again, I prefer it the wrong way. It makes me paranoiac if I hear it. This the is right the most way. complicated book I have ever tried to read. Strange, because the goal of the book is, on the contrary, to like make Lacan back into someone whom even your grandma could understand. So the trust of the book is not so much Christianity. The basic idea is the following one. Okay. Uh, today, there is a certain uh, common agreement that certain things are going on, like we need more tolerance, people no longer believe the era of big ideological... We need com uh, tolerance and, and... And on the other hand, ideology is over, who cares about big ideological projects? The third complaint, too much consumption, society of consumption... Too much and, materialism... Yeah, materialism and okay. so on, and lack of true authority. So these are all things that... That I try to... Uh, undermine, not in the sense of defending authority, but in the sense of proving how it's the exact opposite which is going on. Could I give you just an example, for example, authority? Okay. Okay. Let's say you have a good old-fashioned father. It's Sunday afternoon. You have to visit grandma. The father, good old-fashioned authoritarian father, will tell you, Listen, I don't care how you feel if you are a small kid, of course. Mm -hmm. I don't have, ha, care how you feel. You have to go... You're going. Yeah, going grandmother and behave there properly. Okay. That's good. You can resist. Uh, no, nothing is broken. But let's say you have this so-called tolerant postmodern father. What he will tell you is the following. You know how much your grandmother loves you. But nonetheless, you should only visit her if you really want to. Now, every child who is not an idiot, and they are not idiots, <laughs> know that this apparent free choice secretly contains an even more stronger, much stronger order. It's not only you have to visit your grandmother, but you have to like it. So I'm beginning see, to like this book all the yeah, more. That's one example of how apparent tolerance, choice, and so on can conceal a much stronger, a much stronger order. Another, so we should go back to more like the dad that just says, because I said so. Absolutely. It's more honest. Another example, society of consumption. We say, oh, we just consume it today and so on and so on. And no values, no constraints and so on. Ah, one nice paradox. 
it appears like, you know, today you are allowed to dedicate your life to pleasures, uh, actualizing your true self, who cares about... Build your sense of self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. But in order to do this, now things get complicated. You have to, you have to do the proper jogging, proper feeding, not to harass others, and so on and so on. So the paradox is that the final outcome of this so-called hedonism is that our lives, I claim, are more more regulated than ever. The final paradox here. Trying to live healthy is killing me. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what's the solution then? The solution is the following one. You can have it all, but in a reduced form, deprived of its substance. For example, coffee, yes, without caffeine. Uh, uh, sweet patisserie, yes, without sugar. Beer, You're kind of yes. Dennis Leary from Slovenia. Yeah. yeah, but let's go on. It's not only these ridiculous examples. What about safe sex, which means basically sex without sex? Yeah. What about even, if I may uh, add to this series, the so-called Colin Powell Doctrine, which means war without warfare, at least for our side, no casualties on our side and so on. I'm beginning uh, to get into this Lacanian stuff. If you ask me, maybe we'll not like now my next example. Okay. If there is one product which I think encapsulates this logic, yeah. is... Uh, it's a kind of a slightly vulgar one in California. I bought it recently. A chocolate laxative. You know, chocolate usually is supposed to be <laughs> yes, a constipation. Yes, yes. The yes. idea is, you know, the project, the product. Is that in here? Absolutely. Okay. All, of the, all of this is in there. Okay. So, and then there are, again, numerous other examples. Like people say, we are today too, pa uh, too passive, uh, just passive consumers, and uh, so we're, on. We're what running out of time. laughter? I, I, laughter want you, I want to thank you for being here, and I want to thank you for being on Nightbeat, the show that is not afraid to bring you a Lacanian psychoanalytic take on Christianity. It's all here in the book. The puppet and the puppet and the dwarf. And as a Marxist, if I may add, if somebody tells that Lacan is difficult, this is class propaganda by the enemy. Okay. <laughs> Thank you Thank so you. much Thank for coming much. in. I never thought I'd have this much fun talking about this. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Take care. Hi everyone, um, I inflicted that on you for a purpose because what I actually would argue is that that isn't the problem. That guy is obviously an idiot. I'm, I'm referring to Nolan, not you, Slavoj. Um, that isn't the problem. My, what I'll try and pursue with Slavoj this evening is I actually think the media's biggest problem is when it takes itself incredibly seriously. So Mr. Nolan there isn't the problem. It's much more mainstream, so-called highly intelligent people presenting themselves in the media. <coughs> Now, I, there are two key quotations that resonated with me, and I begin my book, Zizek and the Media, with these quotations. The first one is from Hannah Arendt in her essay, Crisis and Culture. And she says, there are a great many authors of the past who've survived centuries of oblivion and neglect, but it's an open question as to whether they can survive an entertaining version of what they have to say. Now, I would argue if anyone's pursued that open question of a rent, then it's Slavoj here, who isn't afraid to engage with the Mr. Nolans of this world. Now, the way, apologies to anyone who's already come across this joke, but I think a very underrated um, philosopher is the guy from Birmingham, Jasper Carrot. And he wants, you have to be of a certain generation from a certain part of the world to read the significance of that point. But Jasper Carrot once told a story 
of a very middle-class dinner party. And given the geography here, I'm guessing uh, an uber upper middle-class dinner party would be somewhere like Islington. Correct me if I'm wrong. So incredibly middle-class dinner party. It's towards the end of the evening. Everyone's had a wonderful time. And the attendees are slowly gyrating. Hope we're not getting you excited here. Slowly gyrating their Riedel crystal glasses with a Chateau Lafitte, 1989. I bet there's a few of you thinking, actually, 1990 was a better year. But they're, they're smelling the beautiful aroma, having a wonderful time, postprandial conversations going full pelt. And the old arthritic, flatulent family dog staggers into the living room, breaks wind noisily, falls down, and starts noisily licking its scrotum. No need to leave, sir. <laughs> Someone from the RSPCA. So it's licking itself, and there's an unbearable um, embarrassment descends upon the dinner party. So one of the male guests says, to try and get rid of this embarrassment, I wish I could do that, as he looks upon this dog enthusiastically licking himself. And quick as a flash, the hostess says, give him a biscuit and you can. Now, I would suggest, keep up with me, I would suggest that story actually illustrates what I actually think Slavoj does. And without wanting to insult him, there's a long... Which role is mine? Well, the I'm dog gonna, I'm or gonna... I'm giving them biscuits? Or... <laughs> I'm going to tell you now. <laughs> uh, the old Greek philosophical tradition of Diogenes, Kion... Ancient, anyone from a classics background, Kion, ancient Greek for the dog, and Diogenes was known as the dog. So there's a long philosophical tradition of people doing offensive things in the public arena. Uh, Diogenes famously defecated, masturbated, masturbated, and I was going to say masticated, that's slightly different, masturbated in public. And as far as I know, Slavoj hasn't done either of those yet. But this idea of offending there being a point behind it. And what I would say is the point behind it to me is that there is this, the media's reaction is to try and co-opt that sense of humour. And to me, Slavo is partly the dog causing the disturbance, but also he has elements of the hostess who actually says, give him a biscuit and you can. And what that comment actually does is stop the media trying to control and calm a potentially embarrassing situation. It ups the ante again, makes people conscious and awkward and that would be my defence, and we'll get, I'll hopefully get onto it with Slavoj later about the role which humour plays. And I've often defended Slavoj time after time after time because he has the audacity to be funny. And po-faced academics can't handle that. And I would argue it's not just humour. Uh, Todd McGowan, in an issue of the International Journal of Zizek Studies, come, came out with a great line saying, sometimes we need to remember the path to seriousness is strewn with jokes. And I seriously believe that, so we'll, I'll discuss that with Slavoj. The second quotation that I'd like to ask you to think about is from where Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man, where he says, the unrealistic sound of these propositions is indicative not of their utopian character, but the, str the strength of the forces preventing their realisation. And this will be my particular... We'll talk about the media in general, but I think before you talk about the media, this is cheaper than therapy for me. I just wanted to have a quick moan about before you even get to say anything in the media, it's the various screening process, because that was the idea behind tonight, the way in which thought is screened, both literally and metaphorically. And in psychoanalysis, there's the notion of 
the subject of the enunciation, the subject of the enunciated, and also the position from which the subject enunciates. So I'm not claiming any general truth to my subsequent arguments here, just a few of my pet peeves about the way in which media in the UK specifically, and some of the things Slavoj may not have picked up on. So before you can even try, before we ask ourselves why isn't philosophical thought done, why isn't serious thought done more often, I think we have to ask some pretty obvious questions. And I used to play a bit of football, and just because there's an open goal doesn't mean you shouldn't try and smash the back of the net. And I don't think sometimes the most obvious things aren't pointed out. So at the risk of saying the obvious, uh, recently there's been Andrew Marr. Um, I was going to say the subject of marital infidelity has raised its ugly head. Um, Andrew Marr is in the news. But Andrew Marr's issue about super injunctions. So this is a journalist supposedly pursuing the truth, the first person to use super injunctions. But I would argue after the Arendt quote that one of the, we have a super egoic injunction. Everything has to be entertaining. Everything has to be light. And that, I think, is one of the main obvious screenings that the media enacts. So just recently, I'm sure you're fully aware there's been a high-profile death in the last few days. Probably not thinking of the one I'm thinking of, because the one I'm thinking of was in, it was mentioned in an editorial in The Guardian, it was mentioned on Radio 4 News, it was Whispering Ted Lowe. This, for those who aren't sports fans, was a snooker commentator who got full mention in national British press for having whispered commentaries on snooker. In the last few days, Ernesto Sabato, great author, Argentinian author, who wrote a book, El Tunel, in 1948, he recently died. And I'm fascinated by the fact no one bats an eyelid when whispering Ted Lowe gets a mention on Radio 4. Many of you probably, or loads of people, haven't heard of El Tunel. It's only, ironically, this last month it's been published a translation in English. So for, since 1948, this has never been available. A great existentialist author, but we get media coverage of a snooker commentator. So that's the extent of the problem. There's also just basic things that need pointing out. The, my experience of dealing with the media in Britain, it's probably, I don't think I'm exaggerating, say slightly more incestuous than an East Anglian village in the Middle Ages. Um, that creates problems. Anyone who wants to do anything vaguely serious has to get through that Oxbridge Mafia. It's not even an intellectual omerta, as the Mafia have this vow of silence, more like a vow of inanity, that you're not allowed to say certain things that might push the boat. So the gatekeepers, I've noticed, for example, think of the number of times the issue of class has been discussed in the media. And my, one of my personal ironies in that is I've never heard the issue of class being discussed with anyone pronouncing it with a flat vowel. Oh, the irony. In recent politics, there's Luciana Berger. Please correct me if I've got this wrong, but from memory, it's Luciana Berger in Wavertree in Liverpool and Tristram Hunt in Stoke-on-Trent. These were new Labour candidates uh, parachuted in on silk, monogrammed, wafting into these constituencies. Now, having drank quite a lot in Wavertree, I can confirm to you, you might have been suspicious, but I've never, ever heard anyone say at the bar in Liverpool, uh, Luciana, could you get a couple of pints of Guinness in, please? So this idea that before we even begin to try and have serious thought or have serious political discussions in the media, 
even working class constituencies in the north of England aren't represented by their own. So the fact that it's difficult to get philosophical thought done in the media, it's a bit of a no-brainer. So briefly, various types of screening, and then we'll get on to um, Slavo's own views. But there's an absolute exclusion. So I'm fascinated. You've heard of the military-industrial complex. I like to think of the media-industrial non-complex. I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Derrida. But when was the last time you heard Derrida discussed? When was the last time Deleuze, Hegel, can any of these people... There seems to be this, it goes without saying, that these people will never be discussed in a serious format. Uh, the other day, there was Great Lives on Radio 4 discussed Simone de Beauvoir. And surprisingly enough, the, the conversation went along the lines of she had a very complicated love life with Sartre. They mentioned the menage a trois, predictably enough. And then Matthew Paris very quickly shut down any serious discussion when they mentioned existentialism by saying, oh, but of course, existentialism is passé now existentialism's out of date, and that was the end of it. Uh, a thinker as serious as Sartre is no longer fashionable. Let's not talk about him. So there's a member of the audience who's the editor of the uh, blog Ready Steady, Blo Ready Steady Book, and he interviewed Alain de Botton, who's a particular bet noir of mine. And he, Alain, um, Mark, when interviewing him, asked him, he said, you mention a lot of classical philosophers, etc., but you never mention any continental philosophers. And Alain de Botton, these are his words from the interview. The figures you mentioned, Baudrillard and Deleuze, aren't people I like to write about, but I have read some of their works with pleasure. My real influence among the modern French thinkers is Roland Barthes. Now, what I would say to that is nothing wrong with Roland Barthes at all, but that's the level of your intellectual ambition. And the idea that he has to say he's read Deleuze and Baudrillard, he has to say that rather than look stupid... But if you've genuinely enjoyed reading someone, why wouldn't you write about them? And that's what I'm fascinated about. It goes without saying that certain thinkers, you do not discuss them. Then there's relative exclusion. So that I would call that absolute exclusion. Certain people just aren't included. Then there's relative exclusion, what I would call the partiality of choices. Um, I've mentioned Ernesto Sabato. El Tunel, I would argue, is at least as good as La Nausée. But why hasn't it been translated only this year? Arguably, it was in Spanish. It wasn't French or German, which the European in intellectuals tend to uh, favour. It wasn't part of the magical realism trend. But why are certain things excluded that so obviously merit discussion, but they are somehow excluded? I, for a long time, and this is from the personal point of view, I wanted to do a radio programme, and my dad once kindly said, son, if I say anything about you, you've got a face for radio. And I wanted to do a programme called Desperate Dons on the basis of what's going on in the university system. And for various reasons, that was never accepted by the BBC, which I took on the chin, absolutely no problem. It's a highly competitive field. But then you find people... Uh, I came across Quentin Skinner, giving a talk about the intricacies of the Privy Council. And I'm thinking, to what percentage of the population and what conceptual depth does this have? But Quentin witted on about the intricacies of at what length of the leg to wear a particular garter. And again, this goes without saying, this is what British media at its most serious tends to discuss. One of the most, I think, insensitive or lack of hypocritical approaches was Tristram Hunt again, he wrote, he's written several books, one of which is, the, is it Engels, the Frock-Coated Communist. He also picked in a Guardian editorial on 
Is it Robert Noonan? I think it was his real name. Robert Tressel was his pseudonym. The ragged, trousered philanthropist, the author of that. And Tristram Hunt criticised Robert Tressel for being a, a part of a middle-class socialist elite. I'm thinking, have I missed something? Here's someone called Tristram writing about the alleged middle-class proclivities of an itinerant Irish painter and decorator. So I do partly admire that level of chutzpah. It's penultimate point, there's a certain death by blandness or misinterpretation. So in The Independent, for example, Slavoj has been denigrated as a postmodernist by Johann Harry. And I'm thinking of all the things, there's plenty to disagree with Slavoj about. <laughs> to call him a postmodernist is at the most basic level lazy and ill-informed. So please have a go at Slavoj in the press, but why call him a postmodernist? It's just a knee-jerk dismissal of thought before it's even been thought. Um, finally, structural screening. There's a certain unaccountability. There's an institutionalized in psychoanalysis, and it's a phrase Slavoj's used quite a few times. Je sais bien, mais quand même. I know very well, but even so. I would ask the rhetorical question from your own experience when you watch the media. What does it take for such a poor level of conceptual performance that people in the media are held to account? So I can think, for example, of um, if you think back to the US election night when President Obama was elected, if anyone saw Dimbleby's performance that night, I was watching it with a friend and we actually turned over to watch Sky coverage because Dimbleby was so bad. But yet, he's part of the Dimbleby dynasty, nothing happens. Um, in academics, shouldn't, we're not wholly in there. Academics, I think, have a large body of responsibility. We, we, we have been awful at actually promoting serious thought in the media. So I don't know whether, I'm guessing a fair few in the audience are from an academic background, but for those who aren't, we have what's called the research assessment exercise that's being replaced by the research excellence framework. So conceptual thought in the UK from an academic point of view in the research excellence framework is reduced to a catchphrase of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. I've got a genetic ASBO forbidding me having children, but any of you who've got children, I'm guessing that they bring home starred work. And you have fridge magnets with the latest school reports. Academics in the UK get one to four stars for their work. So before perhaps we ask why isn't the media doing more serious thought, we've reduced the pursuit of knowledge in UK universities to stars and fridge magnets. Finally, at a political level, again, I've mentioned this to Slavoj in the past, but we used to have what was called, it was the Department of Education. Guess what? Universities are in the Department of Education. Now, then it was the Department of Innovation, Universities and Skills. So universities, Slavoj before mentioned a filthy form of sandwich, but universities are sandwiched between innovation and skills, just in case the word university gets isolated and thought for its own sake is conceived of for a second. And now DIUS got replaced by, you couldn't make this up, DBiz, the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills. Universities aren't even mentioned. So I would suggest all of these, they may sound tangential, they may sound personal, but I, I'm trying to give you specific examples of all the time of how serious thought gets precluded, excluded, and I'm just genuinely shocked that Slavoj ever manages to get the profile he does given these barriers. 
the issue, for example, the London School of Economics recently. There's also the uh, St. Andrews, the links with Libya and Syria. We have a grant body in the UK academia called the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and they're giving out grants. And there was a furore because they specified certain amount of the grant money was going to go to notions that dealt with the big society. And a load of academics spoke out saying, this is terrible. How can they dictate what type of research we do? Because they're telling us we have to do work on the big society. I just think there's a huge level of disingenuousness about that. To think that British academics don't do lots of work because they're hungry for a government grant in the first place is the big thing. Issues of whether we study the big society or not are largely, if you ask me, irrelevant. So just to finish with, I just want to make, finish with one last point, that it's not this old Adorno-type criticism that it's high culture versus low culture and why is the media full of low culture. To repeat, I think that Nolan excerpt I showed you is actually more honest. I defer to no person in this room for my love of crap low culture. So I love, what's it, Spartacus, gods of the arena. Spartacus, blood and sand. Now that is top television. It's when the media tries to be deadly serious. That's my problem. That's when I think it's at its ideologically most dangerous. And having mentioned Adorno, I think there's a massively underrated essay he once wrote called Resignation. And he made the point, because he was asked, and I think Slavo's been asked this before, what's the point of having serious thought when there are real issues to be addressed? And Adorno said, when the doors are barricaded, it's doubly important that thought not be interrupted. So I've interrupted long enough. I won't interrupt him, hopefully, like Nolan did. So I will start asking Slavo a few questions. Slavo, you know, in that Night Beat interview you've seen with Nolan as, um, ironically, given the discussion we're having with him, Nolan comes across as the postmodern father, patronising his audience. As I've mentioned, I think it's self-evident that that Night Beat interview is transparently shallow. And I would argue, based upon your work, that that's when the media is at its most dangerous, when it's pretending to be serious. And when it's silly like that, it's not really a problem. What, what would you make of that? Uh, I agree with you, but I think nonetheless that we have here maybe two, two supplementary versions. Yes, I agree with you. When it takes itself serious, is more dangerous. But on the other hand, isn't it also that when the media tries to be funny, it's also dangerous? You know why? Because they pretend that they are funny. And they count on the fact that nonetheless, in spite of being aware that it's all a joke, we will take it seriously. So, you know, both versions are dangerous. I'm tempted to say that when the media pretend to be serious, sometimes it's even easy to say, oh, but who can take this seriously and so on. What I find so typical in politics in the last 20 years, you know, where from, from uh, Menem in Argentina to Reagan, I think... Reagan's presidency, as I often repeated, was really a kind of a revolution for me. Uh, no, no admirer of Reagan, quite o of the opposite. It was the first, let's call it a post, as uh, some friends of mine, I think Eric Santner called Ronald Reagan, the first post-Edipal president. In what sense? I like this theory of American presidency where Nixon, Richard Nixon, the, the much maligned Nixon, <coughs> 
I think it's time maybe to rehabilitate Carter and Nixon. First, you know, let me make a very economic reductionist vulgar point. If you measure leftism by how much money, what percentage of brutal national product you give to education, to healthcare, to social causes, then I hope you are aware that Nixon was by far more than Kennedy and so on, the most leftist American president who, on the top of it, uh, uh, make this historic breakthrough with China and so on. So don't tell me now we are going to media and ideology. This is why I hated from the very beginning the movie uh, uh, All the President's Men. It's ideology at its purest. Why? On the one hand, you can say it's a big proof of democratic openness of our society. Look, even the top of our society, big, uh, rich uh, capitalists or the president can be shown to be corrupted and so on and so on. That moralistic critique is part of our media. So I agree here with you absolutely that uh, here I agree that this serious approach can be even more uh, dangerous. For example, People often mock me, attack me, uh, and say, my God, you complain about capitalism, but aren't all the media full of anti-capitalism today? You cannot open a newspaper and not find a report on that companies using slave, slave labor in its outsourced uh, units, that companies polluting environment, that bank is uh, getting state, uh, state fund. Yeah, but it's always a personal uh, corruption and as such open to so-called investigative journalism to be resolved through more openness and so on and so on. But I think that uh, precisely this type of anti-capitalist moralism is the most tricky. Because again, let me return to all the president's men. Where does ide ideology enter? Well, ideology enters with, just ask yourself a question, why do movies like all the president's men, and I know it's based on Bernstein, Woodward, and so on, uh, and movies like a Pelican Brief, why do they make us, why when we leave the hall we have such a good feeling and so on? Because with all the corruption which reaches the very top shown, the message isn't the message, basic message, my God. What a great society we live in where, look, two ordinary guy journalists can overthrow the mightiest man in the world, the US president, and so on and so on. No, the serious approach to Nixon begins with how was it possible, which, and I'm not playing any leftist paranoia, just common sense. It is obvious that some of the strong elements in that, whatever you call it, military-industrial complex, must have, at a certain point, they must have decided enough of Nixon for whatever reasons, maybe China, I don't know what, to get rid of him. I would like to hear, I would like to hear that story. So again, here it's the only thing that I would have done. I agree with you, even with philosophy. I would go as far as if to say, no, the true danger is not media denouncing me as clown, jester, Although now it changed, interestingly. It's not only clown jester, it's the deadly jester, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And this is, I think, an interesting shift that they are nonetheless, some people starting to take us 
in a negative way seriously. Till five years ago, I was, yeah, you should go and listen to that guy. He's funny, all the dirty jokes. Don't take him seriously, but it's amusing. Now, more and more, even more than here in the UK, in Germany, in France, it's changing into don't be deceived by this clownish surface. Behind it, there is a deadly, dangerous, corruptive message, you know, it's just... Uh, okay, but what I'm saying is that uh, uh, I prefer to be treated like that than to play this image of, like, the Boton and others, this kind of a, uh, public kind of a wisdom and so on. But again, I would not underestimate to return to Nixon the other side of functioning. Look, everybody laughs at Berlusconi in Italy. It's a gesture and so on. Yeah, but my God, he rules. He still rules with an iron fist. Or to go back to Nixon, nonetheless, I have a certain sympathy for Nixon. His fall was the last authentic Oedipal fall. An authority, figure of authority, got involved in its own crimes and so on, fell down. With Reagan, totally different logic entered, where it's part of playing of being an authority to make fun of itself, of your own stupidity, and so on and so on. I mean, if you look from our cynical, openly cynical era back a little bit, it's interesting to look at how, what new style Reagan introduced, for example, into his rare, he was afraid of open interviews because he was afraid of being caught at his stupidity. But once, by a mistake, they allowed at the White House press conference a journalist who asked him an aggressive question. Basically, the, the accusation was, you are lying here. You know what was Reagan's answer? Openly. Check it up. I did. You find it somewhere on YouTube. You find everything there. The answer was, uh, uh, listen, you know me. You know that I'm too stupid to lie in such complex matters, and so on and so on. I mean, it's unimaginable before for presidents to talk like this. And even Clinton is, unfortunately, part of this, let's call it revolution, ironically, and so on and so on. So again, uh, I totally agree with you that uh, much more interesting than the content is how in the media, in or in the functioning of authority, the style, the form is changing. And I think this tell this I think tell tells us a lot of how uh, of how power again how should we put it power is functioning is functioning in a different way. If I may just add another comment, I think it was deeply. Correct, that you mentioned this, what was your other term? Not direct censorship, but this soft censorship. Uh, uh, what term did you use? Something like re re reduced or what? No, you know, not total exclusion, oh, but... relative exclusion. Yeah, I would simply call it what in Freud they called isolierung. Like, it is reported in the media, but it's as if reported in an isolated way so that the proper political resonance is precluded, excluded. Let me give you an example from this last weeks. All our attention is focused on Libya and so on. More about this later. But did you notice a topic which, again, we were not light on? It was reported, but no echo. What happened in Bahrain? My God, there were the majority demonstrations in Bahrain, 
they were squashed how? Another state's army, Saudi Arabia, came there, directly intervened to squash popular demonstrations in the Egyptian style. We all celebrate Egypt. There were absolutely not that I remember any serious reactions to that. It was simply isolated. Why? Because it runs totally against all this image of the West supporting democratic revolutions and so on and so on. Let me tell you another thing which is of the same order. Let's take what is going on on the West Bank. And again, my source here are my Jewish friends. Uh, and now comes the trick. Big media, what I will tell you now, you know what's the source? New York Times and Time magazine, where I learned that every fall, when there is harvest time for olives on the West Bank, the settlers are literally burning thousands of trees, poisoning water, up to killing at least a dozen, dozen Palestinian farmer families and uh, uh, burning mosques, even one or two every fall. Uh, everybody knows it. Again, it was reported in the media, but somehow we didn't really take it in, because if we were to take it in, then it would ruin this idea that somehow time goes on, then just from time to time some mad Palestinians do some killings and so on and so on. I'm not in any way supporting Palestinians. Sorry, I mean so-called Palestinian terror. Uh, what I am just saying is, my God, where is this background? The constant, the constant, I cannot call it, but terror from settlers. And we should go here even one step further to claim that settlers are not simply just crazy settlers, because every liberal Israeli will tell you, yeah, yeah, they are those Russian origin members in a nice racist way. They often, that's what they told me, they tell you, you know, half of them we know are not even Jews. We just allow them to emigrate from Russia and so on. But the, the truly disgusting play is the play that the Israeli Tel Aviv elite plays with these settlers. They use them, settlers are basically, most of them pure Russian origins, naive. They use them to do the dirty job, and then, of course, from time to time, they castigate them and so on. For example, uh, often Palestinians then uh, uh, make an appeal to Supreme Court. For the, and, of course, Supreme Court, every 10th, 20th case, they made a decision in favoring Palestinians. But it's clear what's happening, that, uh, you know, they do this so that they can save their legal face. You see what legal democracy we are, legalists, blah, blah, blah. But basically, this is marginal. The terror goes on. And again, no, I didn't get this from some Al-Qaeda Bill 10 or... <laughs> again, my source here is exclusively Time, maybe Newsweek, I'm not sure. I think it was more Time, New York Times, not even Guardian, not even this. Left. But you see my point. You don't have to, to go there to see some authentic first-hand experience. This is for me a nice example of what you mentioned, this uh, exclusive approach. It is there. Just This is the material power of ideology. It is there, but somehow we don't connect it. It doesn't click. It, it is, to use this old Levi-Strauss term, it's deprived of its... Uh, symbolic efficiency, let's call it like that. And here, just to go to the end with you, it's, uh, for example, my own experiences here, me as a cloud and so on and so on. Uh, a, 
a year ago, Spiegel, the big German weekly, asked me to do a long interview with me. I said naively, I made the mistake, yes. Then a guy even came to Ljubljana, talked with me for four or five hours a day uh, for three consecutive days. And then I was pretty shocked at the result because I took especially care of, if I may put it in a self-ironic way, diminishing my quota of obscenity and jokes. I went very patiently into why Marx what does it mean, blah, blah, all of And then what I read there, it was absolutely shocking. You learn absolutely nothing about my theory, mostly just that it's some confusion of where Marx and psychoanalysis are brought together with some other fashionable trends, but most of it is how, of my, how my apartment looks, how I dress in comparison with Tony Negri and Alain Badiou and so on, <laughs> and uh, some of uh, this, type, this type of jokes. Although the guy, pretends not to agree with it, he reports on all the polemics I was involved in Germany, which are for me totally shameless. For example, that the New Republic stuff was widely circulated and translated, namely that idea that I, that I publicly support a new Holocaust, the killing of all Jews, except those who are uh, critical of the state of Israel and which is for me, again, I simply thought a direct lie like this is not possible. The origin is a very simple one of this. Yes, I say this, but I say this in a line of thought which is absolutely unambiguously just the, the resume of the thought of my enemy. Namely, this is what Jean-Claude Milner, in his book, Criminal Tendency of Contemporary Democratic Europe, whatever uh, attributes to, not even to leftists, for him this is at the very base of European Union project, that what stands as an obstacle to European Union are the Jews who don't want to dissolve their specific status, so they should all be killed, and so on. I mean, I ironically resume this, and it's breathtaking how public argumentation, which is not even argumentation, works. I played the naive liberal game. I wrote some letters to German media and so on. None of them was published. The only reactions I got were in the style. Yeah, now, now Zizek tries to convince us that he didn't really mean what he says, that he meant it differently, but ha, 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 we see how he tried. No, I didn't claim that I meant it differently. I, claimed very clearly that I didn't mean that at all and that it's absolutely clear from the line of thought. But again, you cannot, you cannot get the message through. You simply cannot get the message through. Now, and I simply decided to, I simply decided to, 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 to ignore it totally. Not to mention, for example, that problem with Hitler. When I wrote, the problem with Hitler is that he wasn't violent uh, enough. Of course, this was a provocation, but my God, if you read not all the book, just that page, it's clear when you mentioned Hannah Arendt, in what sense I meant that, as a further criticism of Hitler. Maybe you know the story, I'm sorry if you do, I will briefly repeat it. What bothered me is the horror of now, the recent trend in some post-communist East European countries where 
you have this vague, not so much rehabilitation as fascination by Hitler. Maybe you know the story. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. I remember some four or five years ago, a Slovene top sportsman, ski, uh, skiing, uh, when asked, are you ready for tomorrow's uh, slalom? He said, ready like the German army on the 22nd June 41 in the morning. Then, of course, there was an outcry. Then he said, no, 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 I know Hitler did crimes. I only wanted to say, in spite of the crimes he did, he had balls, courage, and so on. And my idea was, following Hannah Arendt, that this is already too much to give to the Nazis. No, Hitler was not this kind of a Byronesque, heroic figure of evil who is evil, but you know, in his very evil, heroic, fascinating, Hannah Arendt, you know where she is good, otherwise I don't call this, of course, we don't agree with her. When she drew attention to the ambiguity of the Nazi dismissal of, you know, Nazi heroism against this uh, small, petty, bourgeoisie, daily life, and so on. He said, no, Hitler was really serving this very cheap commercial interest that, uh, interests that he was making fun of and pretending to despise all the time. That was my sense, that you give too much to Hitler to treat him as this kind of a hero. No, Hitler was not even in this evil sense a hero. Hitler did all the killings because he was afraid to, he did all the killings because he was afraid to do a little bit modest change where it would really have mattered. To, I'm here an old-fashioned Marxist. The problem for Hitler was how to save the capitalist system and so on and so on. And in this sense, then I add but that I am for violence, but in the sense in which Gandhi is more violent than Hitler. Because, again, Hitler had to kill millions because he was afraid to do a real change in the relations of production, state machinery, while Gandhi at least did really try to stop the functioning of the British state and so on and so on. Nonetheless, again, you cannot get now again. Friends are all the time, my German friends, telling me clips from the news. Ah, I'm the guy who secretly tried to rehabilitate Hitler. And I know I'm, it's lost. The game is lost. But you know what? I think there are enough kind people like, I hope, you, who somehow at least are marginally open to it, and I simply resigned to it. I mean, I, I, I think one should maybe even stop worrying about it. But and I was going to ask, having said that, I was talking about before structural forms of exclusion as well, as the relative forms of exclusion. Um, I'm guessing quite a few of you have seen The Pervert's Guide to Cinema. I'm, this I haven't. Okay, but <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. That's why, just an apology and what I should have said. Uh, uh, I'm very grateful for you, from what you're talking, for your book. I will try to read it, your book on me. No, 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 it's not you, it's me. I maybe secretly despise myself so much, yeah. No, 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 it's me that should do this, my God, because I, I'm... It's very difficult for me to accept the fact that I'm taken seriously enough that books are written about me. And then I'm terrified, like, no, this cannot be really about well, me. Slavo, if it's any consolation, it's been career suicide for me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice, that's nice. That's a first, I shut you up. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. So that I can now hypocritically say, oh, I'm so, so, oh, what can I do for you? Of course, nothing. That's when you offer help, when you 
can be sure that you can do anything. <laughs> okay, sorry, let's go on, please, because I have more serious things now, what, to what say. What I was going to ask was, a lot of people might have seen The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, yeah. and I was aware that you were trying to make The Pervert's Guide to Ideology, and from memory you told me Ralph Fiennes was on your side, etc., because Sophie Fiennes was involved in the original. Now, I'm just curious as to, A, how that's going, because last I heard was it's not going anywhere, but B, isn't that indicative? And now you're doing the same thing to me, you know, like, you are wishing me all the best because you know that uh, it means nothing. Okay, sorry, yeah, okay, sorry, yeah? No, so I'm just curious. Yeah. If you can't, with your profile and the, num the yeah. number of books you've sold, etc., if you can't get to make a basic theory about ideology, who can? Uh, no, but again, up to a point, it was simply all this mess with labor losing and funds cutting uh, uh, and all these changes in the British media scene. So up to a point, it was objective. We were victims of circumstances. Up to a point, it was, as some of you already know, this old story of mine, a joke which isn't a joke but reality. Sophie told me that one of the reasons against at Channel 4 at some point, these are other people who were there in charge two years ago, was that they said that it's a very good project but why this title, Perverse Guide to Ideology? We no longer have ideology today. No, we are in post-ideological era. So they seriously suggested something like, uh, their suggestion, literally, Perverse Guide to Contemporary Spiritual Tendencies. No, like, <laughs> they say it means the same, but it's more appropriate. No, but the good news is that now, big victory for progressive forces, for, to put it in Stalinist term, the progressive unity of working class, poor farmers, patriotic bourgeoisie, and honest intellectuals. We are all together. We start shooting in Dublin in a month. Right. Brilliant. So we will do it. We will do it. We did it. Yeah, finally. <laughs> uh, in between, it was Sophie Fine's feminist betrayal. We could have started shooting already a year ago, but she got pregnant. And I told her, mm, betraying for earthly pleasures. Right, <laughs> This next question is in revenge, so I introduced yeah. Slavoj before in the bar to friend of, a good friend of mine, David Tom, yeah. and uh, Slavoj's opening gambit was, you remind, you look, you remind, I've seen you before, you look like a rapist. In some movie, yeah. So, having, having used that interesting opening gambit with my friend David, yeah. would, please don't take this the wrong way, but in the film The Piano Teacher, the rapist gives back in a highly traumatic and horrible way to the woman fantasizing, <laughs> would it be a fair depiction of what you try and do with the media, that you're giving back to the media the fantasies it doesn't want to acknowledge? Yeah, you can say this because although I must do a, a little bit of self-criticism there, I hope you saw the movie, Haneke's movie based on Elfriede Jelinek novel. It's interesting how here I'm self-critical. In my reading of the movie, I, in a typical male patriarchal way, misread the ending. I misread it as a tragic ending, you know. She is stabbed by the guy or whatever, like as if she's on her way to death. And then I, some friends of mine, uh, who even, some of them Austrians, knew Elfriede Jelinek and told me, wait a minute, I've spoken with her, it's not true. And then I looked at the movie again, yes, it was my projection. On the other hand, no, it's a liberation. Her wound is more like that uh, uh, fight club. Hitting, because it, it's kind of a, she gets rid of it. It's an optimistic movie in a typical way. It's, it's typical, I admit it, trace of male chauvinism. I misread feminine liberation as her self-destruction and so on. No? Which, in a way, if I may now make another point about the media uh, uh, and ideology, it's 
I'm again and again shocked how, you know, we intellectuals, when we develop a certain theory, you often caught yourself not really believing it. And you are quite surprised when you really get it, no? So I was quite surprised with last year's, oh sorry, this year's Oscars. In what a clean way, the two big movies, the two winners, The King's Speech and Black Swan, how they exactly reproduce the worst reactionary trends of our predicament. First, The King's Speech. It's what's happening there. I think the king, the originally, the king person, what is he? Stuttering, unable to speak in public. And if you know the story, it's clear that this has nothing to do with any personal trauma or whatever. It is simply a quite reasonable, I claim, rejection of any normal individual to play the role of the king. I mean, it's this, basically, his stuttering is a, hysterical, in a progressive good sense, resistance to like, sorry, it's too stupid for me, I cannot take that seriously. It's the difficulty of assuming, of playing part in, in investiture, of assuming a certain role. And I think that the function of that good Australian guy, blah, blah, played like Jeffrey Rush, his language teacher, is precisely to make him stupid enough to identify with the role to be able to play the role. Because remember the final conversation between the two of them, when to provoke him, Jeffrey Rush, the teacher, sits on the king's chair, even throne, whatever, no? And then the king, future, no, he's already king at that point, or, uh, shouts at him, how dare you sit there, this is my seat. And then Jeffrey Rush asks ask him provocatively, but why should this be your seat? Why not me? And the king says, because by divine order, I'm a king, and so on and so on. He says the full stupidity. And of course, then Joshua say, okay, your majesty, now like, now you are. So it's a very sad story of taking a normal act of resistance and crushing it down so that you can, in a stupid way, uh, play your role. But it's, and I think that Today, this is precisely the reactionary option. It's, no, we make fun of the time, nobody takes authority seriously, and so on. So, the point is, we should take our paternal or whatever role seriously. With uh, Black Swan, it's even worse, I think. I know I'm giving you a very simplified analysis, but it's quite symmetrical. With the male person, at least you have the option of taking your role seriously, but nonetheless having some private life where you have your happiness and so on and so on. We know that all good kings privately mock their role, but they can play the role and so on. But with uh, the black swan, okay, it's much more complex, but the basic uh, uh, thesis, premise of the film, I think, I hope you noticed how disgusting it is. It is that, again, in contrast to men who can fully assume his symbolic title, his mission, and still have a, let's call it normal private life, with a woman, you cannot. If you fully dedicate yourself to your mission, in this case, to be a ballerina, you pay the price with death. And this is the old reactionary theory. You must know it from different stories, uh, fairy tale, or whatever. You know, usually, just it's not. Uh, usually, it's not 
ballerina, usually it's voice. You know, for example, here Kislovsky is deeply in this reactionary trend, the double life of Veronique. You must choose either life or career singing. It's in, now you will say, but this is just physical illness. Yes, but it happens to a woman, not to a man. I know four or five movies where a woman has to choose between career and health or family. She chooses career and she dies. I've never seen not even one film about men having to suffer this predicament. So again, I think it's a deeply reactionary film where basically the lesson is woman's place is not the public career. If she does that, it's in the long term suicidal. Or then you have, of course, always the exception. The exception are there Margaret Thatcher figures like, but there are women who have balls and so on, but that's another story. <laughs> but so you see how this is what shocks me, how even here, you find ideology, or if you permit me another old story, it really shocked me. Uh, did you notice something strange in the last James Bond film, Quantum of Solace? I'm not talking about politics. Politically, it's very progressive, I would say. Basically, to cut a long story short, uh, James Bond saves Evo Morales from some uh, reaction, from, from some a false ecological company who really wants to control water resources and so on. But did you notice something else? In the final scene, it's the first James Bond film with no sex. No sex at the end between James Bond and Bond girl. They just embrace and say, okay, we are both too traumatized and so on and so on. <laughs> now you will say, oh, this is one example. Ah, now let's go much lower than James Bond. Dan Brown. Did you notice something strange in one of the great candidates of the worst, movie of, or worst book of all times, The Lost Symbol? There is a couple, Robert Langdon and some... Don't look at me, I haven't Sir? read it. I, uh, <laughs> KGB will establish what you are reading, don't do that. Uh, 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 no, but there absolutely not even a sexual tension. Even already in Da Vinci Code, no sex. Angels and Demons, even more interesting. There is sex in the novel between Robert Langdon and that Vittoria Vetra, the Italian scientist, woman who helps him. But now comes a strange thing. There is sex in the novel. There is no sex in the movie. Wait a minute. What we were usually used to is that Hollywood adds sex to make it more commercial. Now we have Hollywood censoring, deleting sex. I don't think this is a progressive move. I think I agree here with Alain Badiou, who developed this in his last book, that this is all part of this extremely narcissistic trend when even a passionate sex or love engagement is considered too traumatic, something that opens us too much that may disturb our narcissistic balance, and so on and so on. It's the same reason for which also, as Badiou noted, we are now witnessing a strange rehabilitation of the ancient tradition of pre-arranged marriages. The only difference being that uh, in the old times, it was the family council or whoever, relatives who did it. Now we have all these dating or marriage agencies. And as Badiou noticed, it's a wonderful detail of how they call them, uh, oh, sorry, of uh, 
But you found uh, an agency in France, he found the ad, of course, he's not looking, <laughs> where uh, they say, they use French the same, tombe, to fall in love, that we will enable you to be in love without the fall, without falling in love. You see, the idea is precisely to avoid that dangerous moment of where you are struck with it, you fall, you lose. No, it will be all part of your, of your, of your homeostatic economy, no risk, no opening involved. So again, at this level, we should look at ideology. At ideology today. This is where media fascinate me. But I talk too much. Let's and just one thing. When you mentioned London School of Economics, no? Okay, it's or easy to make now, Libya. It, yeah, it's, it's easy. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to make Libyan School of Economics. Yes. <laughs> Maybe there is a mistake here in the very way of my argumentation. You know which one? Because there is one thing apropos Libyan crisis which shocked me. Really shocked. Did you notice something strange in how, not how the media covered it? There it's clear what is happening, why the media love the Egyptian crisis. Because, sorry, the Libyan crisis. Because it's a renormalization, which Egypt, it was a democratic opening, but we really didn't like it, blah, blah, blah. It, we were uneasy. With Libya, it's back to old waters, you know. A guy, bad guy of evil, humanitarian crisis, humanitarian intervention, rehabilitated. It was a kind of a, we return to old, well-known coordinates. But what really bothered me, and I think this shows the decadence, I'm using this term in a fully conscious way, the decadence of the West, of the Western so-called radical left. Now correct me if I am wrong, but my impression was that the large majority of leftist, even left liberal, but even more radical leftist critics of Western intervention in Libya, they were almost all obsessed with this question of sincerity. Like, uh, is it really for helping the victims there? Or is it about uh, oil interest, uh, pol politic, blah, blah, blah. My God, I was shocked by this. Where did the left arrive at to be even thinking in these terms? They behaved as uh, disappointed lovers, as if they secretly expected a pure humanitarian intervention, but that, no, 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 you don't really love me because, uh, like, you, I mean, uh, you know who gave me this wonderful idea, critical? My good Indian friend, Saroy Giri, who said he was shocked, and he told me, he wrote then about it, a wonderful similar story about uh, Nepal. When the Nepalese Maoists were close to taking power, India planned to give arms to the royal army, of course. And all the Indian left played the same game. Oh, they are not giving arms just to keep peace. It's a brutal political intervention to blah, blah, blah. Let's not blah, blah, blah. And then came a shock. The Nepal Nepalese Maoists finally couldn't stand it and exploded and said, stop it. Do you know what you are doing? Are you aware that that more than half of the royal army is already penetrated by our agents. Are you aware that most of the arms given to the army come to us? So please, at least think what you are doing. Stop with this moralism and ask the elementary question, what will these arms, 
What will be their function? Who will take them? And I think the same thing should be here. Screw sincerity. The question to be of one should assume automatically, not even debated, that to use the old Stalinist, why not, term, uh, imperialist forces, when they intervene, intervene for also for political, economic interests, and so on. We shouldn't even be debating it. The only question to be asked is, whom will these arms deliver their serve, and so on, and so on. And here, I am much more a radically leftist cynic. I don't know enough about the situation there. But if people, I have no sympathy for Gaddafi, but if people who are rebelling Gaddafi are potentially a genuine, independent Libyan movement, then I say, yes, give them arms, and maybe the story of Afghanistan will repeat itself, and 10 years later, they will maybe even use these arms against NATO, and so on, and so on. My God, stop with this moralism. Ask the real question. I don't care if they are sincere or not, but what does it mean politically for power relations there, these arms? Who will use these arms, and so on, and so on. And if our judgment is that there is a serious possibility of, how should I call it, progressive use, then why not? Let's not be moralists here. But especially let's not get caught in this, uh, how should I call them, in this, uh, in this uh, moral, in this, uh, let's not get caught in this uh, moralistic games. And the last political point, very quickly, that I would like to make is, uh, a proof that nonetheless we theorists, dreamers, and so on are getting dangerous. My God, this made me so satisfied. Namely, uh, I thought it's a joke, and then I emailed my Chinese friends, and they confirmed it to me. It's not a joke. You know that about three weeks ago, I think, the Chinese government, okay, Ministry of Culture, whatever, formally, it's an official act, prohibited on their movie screens and on TV prohibited all the movies or on TV and theater, all the movies or TV stories which deal with time travel and alternate history. <laughs> with the justification was that such stories, I quote, introduce frivolity into serious historical matters. But isn't this a wonderful example of how those in power are afraid even of a story about alternate reality like that? It may give wrong idea to people and so on and so on. No, I think this is our reality more and more. Although, of course, we do have alternate reality stories, but we do it just more efficiently. The problem is how to, how to, how to, how to put it, how to limit, how to constrain political imagination. Now I've talked too much. Gemma, do we have time for one more? Yeah. We should have, my God. Yeah. It's, uh, well, I'll, I'll double up on the questions, because it'd be good to yeah. get some questions from the audience. But mm. is there, I've confessed that I really love Spartacus, Gods of the Arena. Um, this, not the old movie, which is too moralistic. No, no, the new HBO uh, Kirk Douglas movie is the kind of a Hollywood progressive no, it's so, moralism. It's so horrible. tasteless, it's unbelievable. But yeah. the other thing I'd recommend to the audience is it's always sunny in Philadelphia. If you ever see that, it's a US import. Mm. Uh, Danny DeVito in the latter stages of his career just giving up all notions. My tastes are lower. I advise you, Fast Five. This is <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> is there any TV series like those which have um, that unexpectedly have made you think? Okay, now it's an old story that I will repeat and it will be a shock to you. Uh, 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 24. 
I changed my mind, I'm ready to rehabilitate it. I think the last two installments, seven and eight, are the best of radically progressive Hollywood. Now, you think I'm crazy. Did you see the last two? Not only are there at the level of content, almost naively, in a even too naive Marxist way progressive, like, you know, for example, uh, one before the last, I think it's seven or six, uh, seven, yes. You know, at the beginning it looks like Muslim terrorism, then you learn it's all staged by an American defense company which wants to push uh, a, a Pentagon into an exclusive deal. So it's this elementary leftist twist from external threat to an internal enemy. Point two, it's even too sentimental, but nonetheless a nice, too politically correct, maybe moment when, when Jack Bauer thinks that he's dying of some radiation, he calls a Muslim priest whom he even mistreated before, claiming he is the only, the only friend I have. But what I found, okay, this is the usual left, uh, Hollywood left, this is not enough. But what I like is that the final predicament that you get, how the series at the end presents us with two, three positions which are all portrayed as desperate. Jack Bauer does not end as this kind of a, the right-wingers like it, this kind of a, I sacrifice myself by doing behind the scenes the brutal, cruel stuff, torturing and so on, because somebody, the true heroes, has to do the job. No, at the end, he's totally broken. He says, I cannot live with I, what I'm doing. It should, uh, he says, it should all get into public. This is unbearable. I will never find my peace. So there is no justification in this way. Then his counterpoint, the ethical figure of the president, the woman, Alison Taylor, also gets caught in a similar game and steps down at the end. So at the end, you have a total deadlock, no uplifting message. She is obliterated totally broken, she, the liberal face, admits her inconsistency. Sorry, but this at least is what honest analysis shows us. No cheap way out, neither the right-wing justification, you know, this kind of a simple, the most disgusting version, no heroism of somebody has to do the dirty job, blah, blah, nor this easy liberal uh, pelican brief or whatever, you know, the good liberals tell the torturers, ah, no, we can do it in a human way, otherwise we will become like them and so on or whatever. No, it just ends in a total ethical deadlock. I'm sorry to tell you, but this is quite something, I think. Uh, I, Much, I, I haven't uh, finished the box set yet, so thanks sorry? for that. I haven't finished the box set. Are you stupid? I didn't watch <laughs> it. I just report on, I read about it. Who has time to watch this stuff? The, the last thing, you know what you should think about? How another, if you ask me, like moments where I learned to think from movies. Now, this is not a true incorrect form analysis, but some of the movies, like, did you see the British working class, okay, not comedy, it's like, it's more tragic, but it was popular some 10 years ago with the young Ivan McGregor uh, 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 brushed off. Now, if people ask me about object of desire, double negation, Hegel, my God, uh, erotics, logics of erotic approach, you have there a wonderful scene, I already quoted it once, I think, where, you remember, uh, 
see, even McGregor accompanies home a girl who is from more upper class, some kind of accountant, but they fall in love, she turns good. Okay, the point is that when they are in front of her block where she lives, she tells him, would you like to come up for a coffee? He says, yeah, but there is one problem. I don't like coffee. She says, no problem, I don't have any. <laughs> I mean, what I like so much is that without any obscenity, can you get a more direct, come and fuck me, but without saying anything, you know? You just first offer a pretext and then take the pretext away. And this is what I like. You, what in this double gesture, the result is not nothing. The logical result would be, okay, no coffee, no visit. No. <laughs> but, uh, and uh, this is for me, now I will complicate things. Still, I think that... Ernst Lubitsch, we, Ljubljana School, Alenko Zupancic, me, made serious self-criticism lately, that maybe we play too much Hitchcock, there are others, like Ernst Lubitsch. In Ninochka, which is not my favorite Lubitsch, the favorite is, of course, to be or not to be, in Ninochka there is nonetheless, please listen to it, it's an incredible line of dialogue. Alenka Zupancic found it and brought it to my attention. She now wrote a whole text on it. Uh, the hero visits in Ninochka a cafeteria and orders coffee without cream. He, has, he says, coffee without cream, please. Listen what the waiter answers. Sorry, but we have run out of cream, but we still have milk. Can I then bring you coffee without milk? <laughs> this is what Hegelian dialectic is called. And uh, now you will say, this is simple differentiality, no? Like, uh, because... Like, uh, now you will say, what's the point? Because in any case, he wants plain coffee. But no, the waiter is right to offer him because he doesn't want just plain coffee. He wants coffee without something. This negativity, you know, it's like my favorite, it's not, don't be afraid. I will not uh, repeat myself for hundredth time. If I say Montenegro joke, it will not be that, how the Montenegro guys masturbate, no? I have a better one. How, uh, why does a Montenegro guy in ex-Yugoslavia, they were famous for being lazy. Why does a Montenegro guy always put at his night table a full and an empty glass of water? Because he's too lazy to think in advance, will he be thirsty or not during the night? <laughs> you see the same genius. Now, with your stupid British common sense, you would have said, okay, just put a glass and you drink it or not. No, Montenegro guy is a dialectical negative. He knows that the absence itself has to be represented, marked by an empty glass. Now, you will say, why this is not the same? Here, I have a theory. Precisely because... The, why is coffee without cream not the same as coffee without milk. It would have been the same if it would simply have meant coffee. No, the question to ask is why do we, why do we add something to coffee? And here we have, of course, the entire topic of objects mole. Coffee needs something to become really coffee. Now you will say, but sometimes you also get pure, plain coffee. Yes, but then, I will not bore you now with the analysis, then coffee itself functions, as it were, at its own supplement. What I'm saying is that in order for this logic of coffee with, without to function, 
you must already have the structure of object A, the thing which is not in itself fully the thing, which needs a supplement, and so on and so on. In other words, to conclude nonetheless, uh, what makes this situation more complex is that another example of the same logic is the example where what I'm trying to show you is an example where you negate something and then you negate the negation, but you don't get positivity back. Like, not you, ha you, you have coffee with milk, but then you have what the customer wanted is coffee with, coffee with, without cream. And the waiter offered him coffee with, without milk. So, uh, the way to detect this is where opposites function in the same way, this paradoxical structure. Like, sorry to repeat an old story, but uh, I report, I use it, I think, in my first British book already, about a Hearst journalist who was terribly afraid to take a holiday. And Hearst asks him, why? Why don't you go? You deserve this. He said, but I was working here for 20 days, I was 20 years, I was never missing. He said, and I'm afraid if I leave, like, everything would fall apart. That's why I don't want to take a holiday. And then, of course, Hearst said, uh, listen, don't worry. It's perfectly structured. Nobody will even notice your absence if you go for a holiday. And then, of course, the guy says, that's what I'm even more afraid of. No, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you see, this, this logic of, like, you give a reason A, this reason is negated, it's even more, and so on. This, for example, again, simple jokes like this bring you to the very core of the most difficult Hegelian topics of in what sense identity is always identity as a contradiction. Like, let's make a jump from here to ideology. Just think about when do we use tautology? How literally Hegel is true here? Don't we use tautology precisely in order as two extremes, either to make a cynical, realistic point, or to elevate into sublime the object. Like uh, when you say, for example, you, my love, you are really you. This means, oh my God, you are the sublime thing. But if you say law is law, when do you say law is law? Precisely when law is obviously corrupted, doesn't function, and so on. Then we say, but still we have to obey it because law is law, and so on. So again, all I, what I like is just these sudden moments of enlightenment from here and there that you find in intelligent so-called popular culture, and I totally agree with you here. I mean, what I really hate is movies which uh, pretend to be more than popular culture, but are just a, a, a worst low class, not in the class sense, but in the sense of artistic uh, consistency, attempt to, to fill up this. For example, if you ask me a Goebbels question, which movies you would be ready to burn in public? <laughs> Immediately what comes to my mind are two Bertolucci films, Sheltering Sky and The Last Tango in Paris. I think they all play this game like, if you just show sex, intensely, then it's softcore pornography, but if you just put between the sex scenes a boring nothing, like, you know, people look for five minutes at each other and so on, then all of a sudden it becomes high art and so on and so on. I don't buy that. I think that the true challenge today 
is to go as deep as possible into all these formulas, sex comedy, uh, uh, spy, whatever, terror, and so on, and uh, try to discover, to bring out another, another dimension there. But Slava, could I defend Last Tango in Paris for what it did for the British butter industry? Uh, yeah, but I have an, an answer to this one, uh, which would have been something like, they want to come with me uh, with, uh, with to have some butter. Then I say, no, I don't have any butter. And then you say, Marjorie. no, I have cream with me and we don't need butter and so on. <laughs> okay, in this sense, maybe, yes. In this sense, maybe, although, although like... Uh, uh, I don't like the idea of butter, you know, but you're, that's, you're, another, that's another question. I think we found out that Slavoj is a flora man, right? Is a? Flora man, it's a, it's a type of margarine. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 no, no, okay. Now, you know, I'm an idiot in a literal sense. You know what is an idiot? Idiot, you know, there are, okay, let, just to finish. Recently... I'm just finishing a book on Hegel, and I even wanted maybe the subtitle Hegel for Bessils. You know what this means? I learned in Wikipedia, as all of us today, that there are three levels of stupidity. You have idiots, imbeciles, and morons. Idiots are uh, 25 to 50. Morons, no, sorry, idiots are below 25 IQ. Morons are... Uh, sorry, imbeciles are like uh, your, your IQ is your bodily temperature, like <laughs> in Celsius, no? And, and uh, morons are 50 to 75, no? Uh, uh, I think that idiots are people who simply don't get the properly symbolic dimension. Like, this is always my tendency. Like, you know, you asked me, of course, as a joke, ironically, and I simply started to think butter, lotions, margarine, how do they drive, you know. Something in me pushes me into taking things absolutely literally, you know. It's not that I'm so stupid that I don't get the joke, but no. I say, fuck the joke, that's the real problem here. No. Then morons are those who simply rely on the big other. Morons are the op. For example, another great idiot, in a good sense, was Wittgenstein. He always had this absolute naivety. Morons are people who fully identify with symbolic order, but imbeciles are the most interesting. First, you know, if you say with usual negations, like not something, you know what is that something? Haha, -ha, do you know what, uh, what is negated with imbecile? Like what becile is? It's very mysterious. There is a theory that Imbecile means, uh, means in Asian or in Roman a stick that you need to walk with. So imbecile is the one without a stick to walk. And insofar as this stick that you need while walking or here talking, thinking, is the big other, so it's a very nice position, Lacanian. You know there is no big other, imbecile, no stick, but you still know that you must somehow relate to it. So what I would say is that this neat position, no, avoiding the pure idiocy, this literal, taking it literal, a, a, great, a great imbecile in the best sense, for example, is for me Kafka, no? what he does with Jewish tradition. He's not a moron. He doesn't simply rely on it. But he's also not an idiot. But it's this weird, weird 
treating it at a distance. This is maybe what we did now. More, more imbeciles. Okay. That's a good, good note to end on. <laughs> the only thing I was going to say is that we, in the, I wouldn't want to have a question and answer session in the absence of questions, although you do seem to be good at answers without questions. Um, is, as we don't have a great deal of time, it'd be really nice to involve the cinema audience. So we'll just have one question from those in the cinema. So if everyone in the cinema can see me, um, just stick your hand up and the usher will come to the first person they can and we'll listen to your question from in here. Thank you. Uh, so there will be questions. Ah, because I, was, I thought of talking too much so that then I can say hypocritically I'm so sad that we don't have time for questions. But you almost did it. Almost did it. Hi, Zizek, can you hear me? Are you here or? No, I'm in the cinema. Ah. <laughs> and okay. I'm, I guess I'm, I'll speak on behalf of everyone here in the cinema and I'm thinking about something you wrote about in a book that was published before the YouTube video that we saw. And it was in your book called Plague of Fantasies. Yes. And you spoke about um, bloopers and um, how at the end of DVDs they had um, the kind of the making of, the making the of films, the, the bloopers. What? Bloopers. Bloopers, the errors they make on the DVD. They show the you outtakes. at the end of the DVD. The things that go wrong. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you spoke about that, and you spoke about how um, it was a kind of chance to see the actors being maybe more real than real, but in mm -hmm. actual effect, it was mm -hmm. it was uh, as much a fantasy as the mm -hmm. film itself. And I suppose watching you here tonight, we're very close to you, um, and it, it's a view that we would only see if we were here tonight. But we we actually can't see you. You're still on the screen for us, so you're as much a fantasy as. Um, as, as maybe the film. So I suppose my question is, um, uh, how do you feel about your popularity? Because I think, you know, despite the comments on yeah. Alain de Botton and Sky News, you obviously have a huge following. And, and um, I, I'm a big fan of yours, as I assume everyone here is in the room. Um, so you have a lot of people who say things against you, but you also have a, a huge following. And I was wondering how you deal with that and how you, as a, as a philosopher, as a thinker, how you, how you continue with this kind of ever-growing popularity and a, and a very big following. Oh, maybe it's, I'm very sincerely grateful for this question. I'm almost not used in these days to these kind of kind questions. First, to the, when you mentioned those, uh, uh, mistakes or whatever, no? Uh, here, if I, I'm not boasting, just I'm mentioning Rafe Fines for the simple reason to have somebody who really told me this. He told me that what really annoys him, this is a nice example, probably Adorno would have liked it, of this total manipulation. You know, he told me that now when you shoot a movie, it's all already planned. They say now we will shoot some deleted scenes, and now we will shoot some of these bloopers, mistakes, and so on and so on. They already take into account what you have to do on the DVD version, no? You must have deleted scenes and all that stuff, and they literally plan them in advance. And I kind of, uh, I like this idea, to cut a lot of story short, no? Uh, now, as to this popularity stuff, I can guarantee you that I'm doing, really doing, all possible to 
ruin it. Like, no, 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 no dirty jokes, but uh, I just am finishing, like putting together, blah, blah, blah. There is still a lot of work because I'm aware there are many repetitions, confusions. in. My, so I, this one, I want really to be a real book, consistent line. Uh, it will be printed pages, I would say, at least 700 on Hegel. It's on Hegel. And there are some jokes, but maybe three, four jokes, not too much. It's extremely boring. The first 100 pages is close Hegelian reading of Plato, Parmenides. Then it's 100 pages on Fichte, and so on and so on. So uh, let's see what happens. Oh, you'll get the most boring philosopher in the West. Yeah, 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 with, with that one. But again, you know, here, uh, the reason apart from maybe personal pathologies, that I played this game of uh, making a clown of myself, is that nonetheless, I think the situation is not totally uh, hopeless. In the sense of, you know, people may say, oh, oh, a clown, but I noticed a couple of times how a line of reasoning which people would not have been ready to accept directly, if you can, as it were, if you can present it as a, in a jokish, ridiculous way, then it somehow lowers their ideological attention. They open up and up, you catch them. Maybe they even don't know, but they do take it seriously. Because you know, a true goal of my work is not so much for you to accept certain statesmen, thesis, and so on, but, but to accept a certain critical, analytic view, and so on, and so on. So I think, nonetheless, that basically, maybe I didn't make a mistake here. I still think that in every serious theory, because Deleuze already said this very wonderfully, how when you think it's painful, you think against the spontaneity of your mind. Thinking is like a mental rape, if you want. It's something that forces itself upon you. So you need to start with an obscenity. And of course, you don't end with an obscenity. OK, to finish, I already told you before with my final obscene joke. But you will see why I like it, because precisely it's not you see at the end that the point is totally non-obscene. You know, recently a friend told me this joke. It takes place in Russia in Stalinist times. It's wonderful because it's a Stalinist joke, but it has nothing to do with politics, dissidents, and so on. It's like two men are on a train compartment, and the train goes on. They sit there silently for one, two hours. Then one guy asks the other, uh, did you already fuck a dog? The other guy says, no, this is disgusting. Did you? The first guy says, of course not. I agree with you. It's disgusting. Then the second one asks him, but then why did you ask me? The first says, oh, I was just looking for a good line to break the ice to start a conversation. You know, like, maybe you should take my jokes like this a little bit, no? That, you know, the point is not them. The point is to break the ice, and then we talk about things. And I claim all thinking needs this. This is, for me at least, what is wrong with this de Botton and other style of popular philo or to put it in another way. Uh, you know that today we, what is the ideological message that we are getting? 
it's all from Dalai Lama to all these be authentic manuals. These are versions of be yourself. Realize your potentials, be truly yourself, and so on. Here I am faithful to, now I will be more politically correct, Judeo-Christian Muslim legacy of religions of the book, where I think there is something which they have all together. That precisely, again, truth is not deep inside you. It's not be yourself. Truth is like love. You know, I was recently in, the, uh, in Bilbao, and they told me that in their Basque language, it's even better than to fall in love. Their expression, it's an everyday expression, to, if you literally translate it, to fall in love is to be injured by love. And I think it's the same about truth. You are, by definition, always injured by truth. So again, I think that my ethics is totally opposite. It's not get rid of external obstacles, just go deeply into yourself. No, if I go deeply in myself, I find cheat. It's nothing interesting. Here I am not in Nietzsche's sense, but for an over man. The true ethical call is no, fight against yourselves, go over you. Truth hurts. Truth is a painful encounter, which is why either dirty jokes or whatever, things are needed as the first step to, to shatter you somehow. Thank you. ICA, Slavoj. We are always so happy, very welcoming of you at the ICA. And Paul Taylor, thanks for the fascinating focus of today's discussion. But you know what I would like to do at ICA? Yeah, what? I noticed that in your cinema program, no, we have all this political bullshit, you know, like Iranian cinema, South Korean <laughs> cinema. Why don't you allow me to do a program of like, you know, real films for real people, you know, like action movies and so on, no, like, you know, no, no. not this intellectual stuff, you know. I don't think that's entirely unlikely. Um, both <laughs> Slavoj Žižek and Paul Taylor have books in the bookshop and will be signing shortly. There's a talk here on the 26th of May, New Media, Post Media, with people like Boris Groys. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, do book your tickets now. And just once again, thank you to... I warn you, Boris Groys, you think I'm crazy? Boris Groys is more crazy than me. I won't it's deny it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to both Slavoj Žižek and Paul Taylor. And thank you so much. I'm really grateful for your book. What can I do more?